Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Sydney Ideas Public Program at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Public Program Manager. Before we begin proceedings tonight, I would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the Indigenous people of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their lands that the University of Sydney is built. Sydney Ideas is very pleased to be working with the Greek Festival of Sydney on this co-presentation tonight with Professor Brass Karolis, who is the St Nicholas Lawrence Professor of Modern Greek and the Chair of the Department of Modern Greek and Byzantine Studies in the School of Languages and Cultures in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. Uh, Vras has been an active participant in the Sydney IDs program, which we are celebrating 10 years of this year, as you saw in our video. Uh, the highlights for me were the panel that Brass hosted in two June 2012 on the Greek financial and political crisis. It was definitely one of the most passionate and heated discussions we've had at, in a, at a Sydney IDs event, and the catering was also the best, I think. <laughs> And his presentation on the New Testament in the key text series in 2014 was another brilliant lecture and a highlight of the program. So thank you for us for your continued contribution to the university's community and outreach programs. The format for tonight's lecture is a lecture and then we'll have a Q&A. We'll have a microphone which I'll pass around for your questions. We are recording the event tonight for podcast later on the university website and ABC Radio National are recording it for later broadcast on Big Ideas. So please make sure that you use the microphone or wait for the microphone for your questions. I'd now like to introduce to the lectern Professor Barbara Kane, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences to introduce our speaker. Thank you. Good evening. I'm not really going to introduce Fraz because I'm sure this entire audience really knows him and knows him very well indeed. So I just wanted to say a few things about him. I wanted to say, first of all, that he is one of our most learned and entertaining of colleagues. And if it wasn't completely out of time and place, I'd call him a Renaissance man. Because Raz's, Raz's interests are truly extraordinary. If one just looks at the sort of range of, of, of research and the publications, he's published on Hannah Arendt, Martin Heidegger, Cornelius Castoriadis, Theo Angelopoulos, Andrew Tarkovsky, Alfred Hitchcock, on European cinema and global cinemas. His latest publications include A History of Greek Cinema and a, and a forthcoming second volume on realism on post-war Greek cinema. He's also published two volumes of oral history, Recollections of Man Mr. Manoli Lascaris and The Demon of Athens. And also, most recently, I think, a volume of poetry, which I have looked at and which is also wonderful. He's translated Patrick White's Voss into Greek and many Greek poets into English, including Andrea Angelakis, Nikos Katsouris and Kiki de Mula. The thing about Vraz, then, is that he has this absolutely enormous and wonderful range of interests, and he's a deeply, deeply serious intellectual, but also has one of the most wonderful senses of humour. His, of, of his love of matters intellectual, and one can see some of the range of it from what Meredith was saying, the interest in theology, the interest in contemporary Greek crisis, the interest in um, Byzantium the interest in European history and intellectual life more generally, but he also has an absolute fund of the most wonderful gossip. <laughs> so it is just now my great pleasure to call on Vras to come and talk to us about Aristotle.
before thanking everyone for being here tonight, I never expected that Aristotle would be so interesting for so many people. You know, it was a bit of a, of a very interesting surprise because they called me the other day, early in the morning from BBC in London, to actually to, to give them a talk of a, on the other side of the planet on Aristotle. I said, no, don't you have anyone in, at, at Cambridge to, st- to talk about him? No, he said, nobody's interested, he said, you know, just to uh, uh, give us a lecture uh, for us, uh, for the ordinary people. So I gave at 4 o'clock in the morning in London a very long lecture on uh, Aristotle and uh, the importance of metaphysics in the history of the Western world. So they all fell asleep afterwards, I guess. You know, just, you know, just, <laughs> it, was, it was early in the morning then, I guess. So it was a great pleasure for me to actually, uh, first of all, Barbara, thank you so much for your very generous and very collegial and so friendly and very funny presentation of a very fa- funny individual like me, as you understand, because, you know, just I'm, I'm an Athenian by birth, therefore I must essentially combine tragedy and comedy. You know, <laughs> otherwise nothing works. And actually, my, my philosopher is definitely Aristotle, especially in his poetics, because his book on poetics is exactly a treatise of precisely on these matters, although, the, uh, as you know, the comedy, the book on comedy on, has been lost, and we have seen in the name of the rose by Umberto Eco what is happening, happened with these bloody Christians who want to destroy it, as you understand. People not being allowed to laugh. So... Um, I would like to thank the Senior Ideas for their hospitality and generosity as well. And, of course, my good friends at the Greek Festival of Sydney, because without them we wouldn't be able as intellectuals, as public intellectuals, as thinkers, to bring whatever we actually harvest from this temple of knowledge to the wider community and engage in conversations that essentially reshape the cultural realities, not simply of the Greek-Australian community, but the society at large. I'm very thankful and grateful. Thank you, Nia. And to the president, who still tries to find a parking, you know, a slot, a parking slot. But, you know, that, that's what happens in university. So, I would, starting with this, as you understand, I would like, it would be a terrible truism to repeat uh, Whitehead's famous pronouncement that the whole of Western philosophy, indeed of Western thinking, can be read as footnotes to Plato and Aristotle. Now, he said only to Plato, but I add the Aristotle, right? The statement uh, refers to a previous apophegm by Coleridge, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who divided the world to either Platonists or Aristotelians, as he said. Both statements, according to my perception, are both, in a way, true and untrue. Yet historically, no one can dispute the fact that the whole body of European intellectual life was formed either in the process of endorsing Aristotle's thinking or by criticizing its validity. Leaving Plato aside, he's such a nasty man, and Rick Benitez is not here tonight to defend him, thank God, Uh, Aristotle is probably the most talked about most commented upon and most ruthlessly criticized philosopher of the Western world. For many centuries, the critique of the the Aristotelian thinking had multiple consequences. First of all, something we we tend to forget it, most European universities from Bologna in 1980 were established on the basis of his school, the Lyceum, and with one purpose, either to prove his theories or totally discard them, as they say in one of the founding documents of that university. In the process, not only philosophical groups and philosophers were involved, but also religions and whole social establishments from different cultures, societies, and continents, as we will see. 
historically, the development of what we call modern European philosophy, of the, from the 18th century onwards, was a constant battle with the so-called Aristotelian categories, his much maligned essentialism, and linear sense of time and space. Epic intellectual struggles, if I may use a term for my students, have been conduct, conducted in an attempt, sometimes desperate attempt, to reconcile his ideas with the revealed faith of Christianity, of Islam, of Judaism, or most, more recently, with scientific progress. There's a whole movement in Russia at the moment called biocentrism, or zoophilia, which is based predominantly on Aristotle himself. How could the idea, for example, about the eternity of the world could coexist with a belief in a God creator of ev everything at a one specific moment of time? The struggle was long and arduous, and it seems to me totally lost by Aristotle. Aristotle lost completely his own appropriation by the great religions. The struggle didn't remain, as I said, restricted in Christianity. Islam, with the famous Averroes, Ibn Rashid, Rashid, and Judaism, with the great Moses Maimonides, also came under the influence of his ideas about reason, God, time, space, critical thinking, with major thinkers like the ones I mentioned before adopting an Aristotelian way of thinking in order to deal with the major questions of the tradition, reconceptualize the tradition, and actually create a universal language of philosophy and philosophizing. Talking about Aristotle means also to examine something you have, must never forget, books written based on his ideas. The ongoing conversation about his work, even at the most hostile period, for example, against his ideas in the 18th century, the period of the Le Philosophe, during which his name was associated with ecclesiastical scholasticism, there were very powerful defenders of his legacy, like Leibniz, for example, amongst others. Voltaire was extremely dismissive of him. Who has the time to read that old bore, Aristotle, he wrote? Yet, in a strange way, even the philosopher who studied modernity in thinking, Immanuel Kant, uh, is also a great Aristotelian, as many of his, teach, his, colleague, his the scholars who studied his work have claimed, in his attempt to synthesize the mental and the material and consolidate the schemata of thinking in the way that Aristotle tried with his own essence, his usia, as he called it. In reality, what we call, when we talk about Aristotle, we talk about the whole development of the intellectual history of the Western world. There is no period in which his name doesn't appear. A book has not published about him or against him, on him or for him or against him. And to this day, as you see, when there's a renaissance of writings on Aristotle, it's very interesting to see what sort of an outcome these conversations will have. Recently, in a rather, rather jocular research amongst 25 contemporary living philosophers from the Anglo-Saxon world, Aristotle came second, only after David Hume, as might, might, we might have expected that from the Anglo-Saxons, as you understand, David Hume, you know, just who he is, if I may say, he's a minor thinker, but anyway, you have to make the most out of the whole thing. Yes. <laughs> Joking. <laughs> Yet, if Aristotelianism had been rather a peculiar problem, 
The same cannot be said about Aristotle himself. With very few exceptions, Aristotle is the individual and his intellectual development has not been discussed appropriated, it has not, has not been discussed appropriately or indeed sufficiently. It seems that the more we talk about his philosophy, the less we are interested or we want to know about the individual himself. Martin Heidegger, for some of you who like the Northern European obscurantism has taught modern thinking that philosophy exists without philosophers and that language itself conceals or unconceals the essential ontology of the experienced event of the presencing, as he called it. In a strange way, Aristotle is the philosopher of the concrete and the specific. The thinker who emphasized the materiality of the mind and at the same time, the living character of the material. He had, an he had an incredible fascination with observing the sensible world. We will read an, uh, 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 an excerpt soon. The descriptions of animals, fish, insects, even if they were not by him, but, by, but written by his students, and insects in particular, is one of them, his work, uh, uh, in, in, in many of his works, is a magnificent exercise of photographing slices of reality, of creating memorable descriptions of actual objects and creatures motivated, as he says, by the natural desire to know and by intense curiosity to explore. Ultimately, what is remarkable about his philosophy is what we call, and I think that it is shared with most of us today, unless they are Platonic idealists. It's epistemic realism. In his attempt to synthesize, to bring together, fuse idealism and materialism, Marx, as a matter of fact, praised him as the greatest philosopher of all centuries because of that fusion, as he said. In a distinct form of what we call today critical rationalism, which is probably, I believe, I think, the dominant epistemological paradigm of the last century. This lecture is about the many facets of Aristotle's legacy from the ancient world to contemporary thinkings like Charles Taylor, Alistair McIntyre, Martha Nussbaum, amongst others. Martha Nussbaum is probably one of the greatest neo-Aristotelians who writes at this very moment. And... Uh, among, and, the, the and the dominant moral theory called virtue ethics, but also his political legacy as found in his theory of citizenship. At the same time, it raises some questions about political life, especially in modern democratic societies, as discussed by Aristotle himself in his famous politics, probably the most influential political treatise in the history of political discourse to this day. Unfortunately, and I know that some of you will accuse me, I had to leave out so much. <laughs> Aristotle has written an incredible number of books, most of them lost, but even the ones that we have are so interesting, so complex, so multifaceted and multidimensional that I can't, we can't address all of them. For example, we can't address his metaphysics, which have influenced three religions and still exert immense appeal to the post-metaphysical thought of all post-post-modernists in a very strange way, by the way, right? They are not metaphysical, but they all do post-metaphysics. His logic, for example, 
which has defined the way that we deduct conclusions and theoretical principles from direct experience to this day. Most importantly, we want to talk about his poetics. That needs a lecture on its own, as you understand. His theory of creative representation, which has defined the artistic production throughout the world and still reigns supreme in contemporary thinking. If you want to become a literary critic, you have to read, first of all, Aristotle's poetics. Finally, we have to leave out the fact that Aristotle's language has determined the conceptual references and even the linguistic forms of all meaningful scientific and theoretical communication to this day. When you talk intellectually, you have to refer to physics, metaphysics, catharsis, poetics, biology, the names of animals, physics, notions like the rule of law, all of the good life, eudaimonia, civil society, all come to us through the Aristotelian legacy and not the Platonic, as many people believe, which is so extensive, deep, and complex to be analyzed in less than 50 minutes. The reason, therefore, for this lecture, do I do this? There, that's it. Is that in 2016, the whole world, and which will culminate in this June at the, his place, the Stagira, where he was born, the 2400 anniversary of Aristotle's birth in a small village of Stagira in northern Greek, northern Greece. He was born in the early months, if I may go, I'll come back to this, in the early months of 384, somebody pointed to me that there was no year zero, so it's the 2,399 year after his birth, in the little village of Stagira in northern Greece, as you see, up here. Stagira was a colony from the island of Andros. So when Andros was in the Dillian alliance with the, Ameri with the, uh, with the Athenians, so he was already an Athenian, a citizen by that when he was born. Pay attention though, however, this remote distant village from there, from the, that part of Greece, and of course the, the, the center of learning and culture and education that Athens used to be back then. But he Actually, as you will see, he had a lot of bad, bad synchronicities, this man. His father was a physician to the King Philip of Macedon. And it seems that Aristotle grew up amongst medical professionals. Medical terminology, some people say catharsis is one of them, can be found everywhere in his writings. In the age of 17, he moved to Athens to study under the most important philosopher of the period, Plato, at his academy. Now, this is a very, another strange relationship, as you understand, because Plato was a, a sort of a man who didn't simply have a philosophy, but had politics, and he had a deep trauma against democracy. Democracy killed his teacher, Socrates. It seems that from the beginning, Plato was impressed by the diligence and the enthusiasm of the young student. Aristotle stayed in Athens 
until the death of Plato in 347. And although most believe that he would have been the, he would have been the successor of Plato at the academy, another person was Stephsippus was elected, which essentially people say that, if I may say, traumatized Aristotle as well. He left Athens and he moved to the city of Assos, here, where he got married. And uh, he became the tutor there of the king, Hermias, and wrote a very beautiful poem to virtue dedicated to him. It's very interesting to see that after two years Hermias was killed, he became essentially, he moved to Mytilene, the island of Lesbos, where he started what we call the naturalist period of his uh, philosophy. He conducted, and we know about that, extensive natural experiments. He observed nature. He had this very, very interesting sort of a fascination, as you see, interesting for us today, about what's happening in the world. And that shows something different from his teacher, Plato. As you remember, Plato avoided observation. For Plato was everything, say, everything was sacred geometry. Everything was abs abstract. Shapes, the forms, elsewhere in the Imperuranians, in the world of the, the, um, uh, the celestial world, according to him, as we read in his dialogues. There's always, must have been always a clash between him and his teacher. But however, as we will see, this is one of the most interesting sort of attentions that we see in his philosophy. Many, many scholars believe that he never, never, got rid of Plato's influence on his writing, and essentially, if they believe that he was the most Platonist of all Platonists. Strongly refute that, but anyway, the discussion is going on, and we, don't, we are not here to find conclusions. It seems that from a, Aristotle stayed in Athens, as I said, until then. And then, after he went to the island of Lesbos, he made the most important studies in natural phenomena and life forms. Then something bad happened. In 338, he was invited by the tutor, by, uh, to, uh, by Philip, to be the tutor of the new, the prince, the successor to the throne, Alexander the Great. What a meeting there, as you understand, all right? Now, there are many legendary, sort of even letters, most of them written, believe it or not, in Arabic, about a correspondence between Alexander and uh, and uh, uh, Aristotle, and some of the theory says that uh, goes at least that Alexander was killed after being poisoned by Aristotle himself or by his one of his uh, the spies sent by Aristotle to him. That theory. Now we understand what happens there. Of course, these royals are very very troublemaking. He was. He taught Alexander for about four years until the assassination of King Philip in 335. And Alexander, as a king, started uniting the Greek city-states, as you understand, in preparation for his campaign against the Persians in Asia. At a certain stage, in a very gentle but firm way, he conquered Athens. And uh, that gave the opportunity to Aristotle to return to Athens when Alexander went to the east. There, he established the rival school, I think 
before getting here, which was discovered unearthed only three years ago at the very center of Athens, next to the Warman Museum, which is a monstrosity of architecture. But this is what they found there, you know, just there. And, uh, this <laughs> and they discovered this, which is probably the Lyceum, which everybody knew since the 19th century, and now they're thinking of rebuilding it. Don't give it to the Americans, I said, you know, because they will make a kitsch thing. But this is what, as you understand, it was discovered. This is, we have for the first time a topographical evidence of the Lyceum in front of us. And archaeology, actually, if you study, we have the opportunity, and the archaeologists amongst us studied this thing, will show the different rooms, the different chambers that we have in this complex here, shows that there was essentially the first university that we had, because it didn't have only lecture theaters or lecture rooms, but laboratories and places where obviously there were material collected and probably there was even a, a, a small museum, if I, we, we get well, you know, but that's highly reconstructed, but this is, that was essentially unearthed only three years ago, so the excavations are still taking place. The Lyceum, I don't call it the peripatetic school because the idea has been contested by many people, and there he started teaching until the death of Alexander in 323, where after, after that, his death, he had to escape from Athens to the, if I go back to the the city of Halkis here, where he died one year later. As you see, he was relatively young when he died, and there are many theories as well about his death and why. The life of Aristotle, as you see, was complicated and tumultuous from the beginning. His association with the Macedonian court, through his father, was enough to make a suspect of him to the Athenians. Demosthenes, hated his guts, as they say. All the orators of Athens believed that that was a spy of the Macedonian monarchy at the heart of the Athenian democracy. I mean, you have to understand that we're talking about politics. It's not simply philosophy here, abstract thinking. but serious politics. Then, his rejection of Platonic teachings made Plato and his students say that Aristotle has kicked me, Plato said, as, a foal, as foals do their mothers when they are born. And therefore, in antiquity, an image of arrogance, opportunism, and resentment was established about his personality. Most people presented him as very, being very pompous, full of decorations, and with a certain lisp, as they say, which made him a very, very a sort of a kind of uh, odious person in Athens. Finally, something you have to take in consideration, his collaboration with Alexander... I know that Alexander is the darling of most of you here... And his second arrival in Athens, as his emissary, overshadowed all his work and contribution. In modern terms, in order to be provocative, his association of Alexander can be seen under the same light we see the connection of Marty Heidegger with the Nazis. The cloud of that thought that he was the apologist 
of the violent coercion of all Greek, Greek states, the destruction of many Greek states by uh, uh, Philip in particular, and the leadership of a provincial king remained over him for long to the extent that most of his work was ignored and forgotten for many decades later, unlike the work of Heidegger today. His friend Theophrastus collected his work and stored them in, a, in his library until two centuries later they were transferred to Alexandria and from Alexandria they were to Rome. Some people say more to Rome than to Alexandria where they were catalogued and then they were transferred to Rome establishing the first Aristotelian school amongst uh, the scholars like Cicero. Meanwhile, the papyri on which they were written were destroyed by humidity and uh, say by uh, worms. And from the 200 works that supposedly had written in the beginning, in, in, uh, throughout his life, only 31 survive today. All of them from mostly from the last period in his, the Lyceum. It seems that there was, from the beginning, some confusion about the transition, transmission of his books. Aristotle followed the teachings of Plato, and he had two groups of students, what he called the exoterics, who were the students like an open university, and the esoterics, students who progressed in advanced studies, as he said. It is said that he had written 27 dialogues from which no, no one survived. What we have today, and that's a very interesting aspect, and I'd like to explore that with you today, are the notes of his students, his advanced students, which were extremely dense, dry, some, somehow stenographic sentences indicating oral conversations and somehow points of discussion, like bullet points, as you see, amongst him and his students. For example, his famous, his famous first paragraphs of his metaphysics are indicative of the style of his work. All men by nature desire to know. This is one of the most magnificent expressions, as you know, and in Greek is, you know, just that. An indication of this is the delight we take in our senses. For even apart from their usefulness, they are loved for themselves. And above all others, the sense of sight. For not only when with a view to action, but even when we are not going to do anything, we prefer seeing one but say to everything else. The reason is that this, most of all senses, makes us know and brings to light many differences, differences between things. By nature, animals are born with the faculty of cessation. And from sensation, memory is produced in some of them, though not in others. And therefore, the former are more intelligent and apt at learning than those which cannot remember. Those which are incapable of hearing sounds are intelligent, though they cannot be taught. For example, example e.g., the bee, and any other race of animals that may be like it. And those which, besides memory, have the sense of hearing, hearing can be taught. Now, this is, as you understand, that sentences, they're one after the other, right? They st it starts with this premise 
all men by nature desire to know, which is probably, as you understand, the beginning of one of the most densest discussions. What is nature? How do we desire to know? What do we know? Is the, des the desire to know what is the concept of naturality? What is the concept of nature in this uh, um, uh, uh, passage? And finally, which is what the most interesting part of this discussion, is how he incorporates the, the human and the uh, non-human world in a unity, which today actually we have to rediscover something that Plato avoids doing, for example, in his dialogues. Terms, terse, succinct and dry and somehow dismissive in the style of such paragraphs, which seems to announce conclusion in a quick and cursory manner instead of exhibiting the artistic elegance of platonic dialogues. However, we must see such pronouncements as the final recapitulations of four of long discussions, debates, and conversations. Aristotle's works are implied dialogues constructed on a form of Bakhtinian dialogism. Don't ask me what that is, but keep the word dialogism, which can be detected in the brief and pithy sentences, which seem like notes written down by the interlocutors, including the question and answer time. It's a Q&A at the end of what you see in these texts. In a way, he works look, look like, some of you who are interested, are like two other significant books of the last 20th century, Ferdinand de Saussure Cure, um, Courses on General Linguistics, which are the notes of his students, and of course, Ludwig Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations, which are written in the, the very same way as a reconstruction of notes. At the, the end of such long sessions, Aristotle seems to articulate a consensus of opinions on a subject, which I believe it's also the appeal that his work has to us, for us to this day. Aristotle, be, despite what we think, is an imaginative synthesizer. That's why Freud liked him a lot. He was not satisfied with articulating a speculative theory or indeed a grand theory of being. The close study of various elements in his work indicate many voices in ongoing conversations but not fictional or dramatized voices as we see in Plato's work, but real voices of actual students debating with each other. Aristotle functioned, Aristotle functioned as the convergent space where patterns of thinking and forms of articulating thoughts of speech acts were commonly crystallized. His sentences are spaces of convergence on which somehow disparate and uh, somehow inimical ideas exist next to each other in an uneasy symbiotic relation. For some of you who read, for example, his metaphysics, you can't reconcile certain books, the first book with the last book, especially that very, very strange eighth book of his metaphysics, with the other theories attributed to Aristotle. What was happening? Who wrote these books? Other people. This accounts for Aristotle's love for establishing rules of thinking and his persistence in scrutinizing an idea from different points of view. The ancients used to call him the most etiological of thinkers. He had an obsession with causes. A thing or an event 
is for him the outcome of a number of causes, and the philosopher had to retrace backwards the causal lines and the causal trajectories between our perception and the interaction of the mind with them. We must not forget as well that the ancients didn't suffer for the modern obsession of originality and constant novelties in thinking. They didn't want, they didn't sign every idea with a name. They could actually let the idea be like a, an impersonal proverb circulating amongst the, the, uh, the, 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 the students or their the friends. This is how we must see Aristotle's uh, survey sort of text today. For them, an idea was debated collectively again and again, and if a likely answer was given sometime by anyone, it was attributed to the, the person who originated the question. So you see, I mean, I'm trying to solve the problem of philologists here because they said we can't trust these texts because they are not written by Aristotle. They are, they are not written by Aristotle, but they're written within the Aristotelian school. No ancient philosopher wrote the way that we write today. We have the computer, and you put them, put them there you know, in a file and wait for your publisher, and it becomes copyrighted by you. The ancients didn't have this obsession. Actually, we didn't have that until the 18th century, as you all know. What is distinctly Aristotelian was the conceptual framework, the method of argumentation, and the belief that all answers fit a pattern which gives a complete, a coherent image of the world we experience around us. This is the significance of the Aristotelian work to this day. Aristotle constructed a systematic theory about the understanding and the interpretation of human experience. Although most of his ideas are rejected today, you will see a cartoon that I have here. Don't tell me what Aristotle says. He still believes men have more teeth than women, for example, right? You know, just, you know, he has some peculiar, actually, ideas, Aristotle, about these things. That essentially, even he says uh, the giraffes are the products of a copulation between a camel and a fly. You know, he has all these paradoxical, you know, just events. There are some very funny things in here. But he had the idea that women have fewer teeth, more teeth than, uh, men have more teeth than women. Why? Who are the dentists amongst us? The dentists, the dentists who tell us this. You know, this. so they, these ideas, of course, have been rejected because they are essentially empirical information that he had back then. His method, however, of constructing conceptual systems remains the most important core value that we consider European thinking, and we call it critical rationalism to this day. Aristotle is the great poet of rationalism. His work is based on the firm belief that unlike all other animals, humans are in the position to reflect on themselves, to revise their thinking, therefore observe their observation, and, and construct forms of what he called mutually beneficial action. In his work, acute empirical observation is fused with complex theoretical references. Aristotle seems to enjoy his own observations, through which he feels the delight of the senses. 
in one of his most beautiful passages, I'll read you one of his beautiful passages, because I tried to get Aristotle out of the stain of being a dry, humorless writer, right? He writes, probably written when he was on the island of Lesbos, he stated, that's Mafalda, you know, just to know nothing to do with the presentation, I just want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> it went there, you know, just enough. Now, I think there's a problem with him, I think, you know, just... I'll come back to them, don't worry. As you see, I've got this one. Where is the... What is the... Lipov, that's it. He says here, Aristotle, indeed, this is one of his most beautiful passages you will ever, ever come across. It would be strange if mimic representations of them were attractive, talks about animals, because they disclose the mimetic skill of the painter or sculptor, and the original realities themselves were not more interesting to all, at any rate, who have eyes to discern the reasons that determine their formation. We must, therefore must not recoil with childish aversion from the examination of the humbler animals. Every realm of nature is marvelous. And as Heraclitus, when the strangers who came to visit him found him warming himself at the furnace in the kitchen and hesitated to go, reported to have bidden them not to be afraid to enter, as even in that kitchen divinities were present, so we should venture on the study of every kind of animal without distaste. For each and all will reveal to us something natural and something beautiful, absence of haphazard and conduciveness of everything to an end are to be found in nature works, works in the highest degree and the resultant end of her generations and combination, combinations is a form of the beautiful. That's, for some of you who are interested, the aesthetical theory of all Renaissance painters, especially Michelangelo. So the combination, the endless combinations of nature are giving us this, as he says, the form of the beautiful. Something that's repeated by if I remember well, by Kant as well. The idea that every realm in nature, of nature is marvelous, thavmasion in Greek, miraculous, you can actually translate it as miraculous as well. If you are mystics, that transports you to a completely different reality. If you say that every part of nature, every realm of nature is miraculous, that's it. Indicates a naturalist, naturalist trick in Aristotle's work, uh, Aristotle's work. And uh, it points to the main difference between him and his teacher Plato. Plato has no, had no time for observation. His speculative and deductive approach to knowing presupposes the famous statement that all knowledge is recollection. And therefore, all natural realm represents a secondary reality. The problem of the reality or the illusory character of this world is what made Plato the beloved philosopher of all mystics and Aristotle the master of all those who know, according to Dante. For Aristotle, and that's the philosophical statement here, 
the real is not reducible to anything beyond itself, not even to the circumstances of its emergence. This is his famous and so much rejected today by postmodernists, essentialism. But this must be seen as a great advancement in the period it was expressed by Aristotle because stressing the notion of an essentially identical to itself object was to recognize the objective existence of reality and not reduce reality to the personal perception or to an illusory copy of an ideal form elsewhere. What we take for granted today, that myself is myself, and it's a commonplace, and a platitude, was a major intellectual achievement in that period to be conceived and conceptualized. To give you an example, and I don't want to keep you very philosophical here, you must not forget that the ancient Greeks didn't have a perception of the body as a unified entity. They understood of the hand, they understood of the head, they understood of the feet, but they didn't have a word to put them all together in the unity that we have them today, in a psychosomatic unity that we have it today. They used, Plato used a very interesting word, soma, which is the Pythagorean term for the grave. So this mortal recoil was the grave of the soul. They didn't have an idea of putting all together. There was the, these were the limbs, but not the body. That comes later, and believe it or not, with the Stoics adopted by Christianity. Thus, Aristotle became the father of formal logic because in a very persistent way, he wanted to convince people that A is A. I try to be like Chesterton here. And despite the changes over time, in its essence, usia, it remained the same. Certainly, we can today problematize the concept of sameness. What is same? But there are some common elements between me and myself 10 years ago that make me today, at this very moment, the same person some of you met 10 years ago. Or maybe not. You know, you never know. Only when we talk, therefore, about an individual self as a unified and coherent existent, and not as only then we talk about the individual self as a unified and coherent existence and not as a fragmented and partialized entity. What was a great uh, intellectual construction in its time now is criticized for being false and anti-philosophical. However, it gave for the first time the conceptual scaffolding, if I may use that term, to objectify experience and thus discuss its nature, form, and purpose through his essentialism Aristotle gave us the idea of teleology, that everything exists for a reason and therefore everything has a purpose. Debatable, but very interesting point of uh, starting point of discussion. The arguments employed by theologians, for example, later on, to account for the purpose of the world, why do we exist, especially the famous teleological argument by Thomas Aquinas. I should have had that before. Where is Thomas? Where are you, Thomas? There he is. You know, just, and strongly recommend that book, Aristotle in 90 Minutes. You know, just enough. So, 
that the famous teleological argument of Thomas Aquinas that the universe has a perp that the universe has a purpose and therefore God exists. You have to debate that. Are all Aristotelian ideas, arguments generated by Arist Aristotle's constant preoccupation with causation. For him, every substance has in itself the purpose of its existence. What he called entelechy. In a, in a sense, Aristotle pointed towards an internal programming, our genome, our DNA, within the material structure of every form, which defines its presence, dictates its life, and ultimate determines its death. Today we reject facile causal connection because we can analyze, analyze each singular cause into a bundle of minor other causal connections. But in the time of Aristotle, however, detecting connections meant to give coherence to the world, understand its function, and finally predict its direction. Therefore, control the flow of time and, most importantly, of social organization. The achievement of holistic thinking, of incorporating a partial observation to a network of other observations, is what we call today induction. All science works inductively, even when, as in the case of Karl Popper, for example, claims to work deductively. Aristotle's systemic thinking integrated disparate elements into patterns and totalities of interpretive schemes. Therefore, Aristotle was the beginning of what we call rationalism as a system of thinking made up by arguments, constructed around hypotheses, and investigated through experimentation or other forms of testing. In his two great works, I would like to finish with them, just two paragraphs, would be to like to discuss it, the Nicomachean ethics and his politics, he used to met the method on organized society and on eth the ethical construction of human nature. Unfortunately, we don't have the time to discuss his, his psychology and the way he interpreted imagination. That's for another occasion. In the first, in the Nicomachean ethics, he discusses the virtues of the individual, in the second, the nature of politics as a rational activity of the mind. The ethics are the book of moral responsibility as an act of conscious and balanced choice. It is true that Aristotle excludes women, for example, that's why I had that about the, the teeth, all right, and slaves from the ability to act morally. He has an idea that why by nature slaves and women are by nature inferior, and slaves are by nature slavish. So he talks about men of, certain start, of, certain, of a certain age, with money, aristocrats, and who have gone through the Lyceum, his school, that is to say. So, but I believe that we can here detect some of the reasons that made him later to be reviled by his opponents. I just not to find, have some funny things here. Look how they presented him later because of his of these ideas. This one, no. But essentially, he was so temperate that he had so much phrenesis that a woman 
was riding on him for sexual, you know, just uh, misconduct. That was the, the famous prostitute Herpilis, and that's the famous way that, you know, the notorious way that Paul, uh, um, uh, Aristotle was uh, reviled by many people. I don't know how many philosophers have done that, but even if he did that, you know, that was be something interesting, as you see. So for him, let's have these things out, you know, just, you know, we have to remember there are a, sort of a kind, as you remember, the famous virtues that he expresses in his uh, in Comahian ethics. And as you see, the most important thing of all is the balance, what we call the golden mean. And as you see, courage is between cowards, cowardice and rashness. Generosity between stinginess and extravagance. Ambition between sloth and greed. Modesty between humility and pride. Don't be humble. And uh, honesty between secrecy, secrecy and loquacity. Good humor between moroseness, that uh, uh, accounts for me, as you understand, and absurdity, which doesn't account completely for me. You know, just I love the absurdity. Friendship, and that's why I mentioned and read that one, for quarrelsomeness and flattery. Temperance between self-indulgence and insensibility. Composure between apathy and irritability. Self-control, which for him is the most important aspect of the whole hope, between indecisiveness and impulsiveness. So choose your, 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 your virtue. This is, but for Aristotle, therefore, as you see, the most important thing is, sorry, you can't see that correctly, is essentially the most, the highest form of human relationship is friendship. He believes that all societies are kept together by friendship, by friendship of equals. The truest friendship, he says, is that of the good, as we have frequently said. Is that this one? For that which is without qualification good or pleasant seems to be lovable and desirable. And for each person that which is good or pleasant to him. And the good man is lovable and desirable to the good man for both these reasons. Now, it looks as if love were a feeling, friendship a state of character. May amaze um, this incredible differentiation. Love is a feeling, but friendship is a state of character, as he says. For love must be felt just as much towards lifeless things, but mutual love involves choice, and choice springs from a state of character. And men wish well to those whom they love for their sake, not as a result of feeling, but as a result of a state of character. And in loving a friend, men love what is good for themselves. For the good man, in becoming a friend, becomes a good to his friend. Each then both loves what is good for himself and makes an equal return in goodwill and pleasantness. For friendship is said to be equality, and both of these are found most in the friendship of the good. Now, that's totally absurd, as you see, right? This is orgasmic, completely, as a, as a sentence, as a structure of the work. There's something which has been disregarded in Aristotle ethics. The virtue, what he calls here, of moral choices. That essentially we are the total sum of our choices. We are not reduced to the circumstances of our birth 
or our condition, social condition, but we redefine ourselves through our choices. Even friendship, as you notice, is a choice, and through this we are led to the most social and therefore political of virtues, as you heard at the end, equality. His ethical theory is therefore linked to his political theory. He starts his politics, probably, you must have heard this one, with a famous paragraph. This is one of the most you know, foundational paragraphs in the history of the Western world. Every state is a community of some kind, and every community is established with a view to some good. For mankind always act in order to obtain that which they think good. But if all communities aim at some good, the state or political community, which is the highest of all and which embraces all the rest, aims at good in a greater degree than any other and at the highest good. As you notice with what we read before, by stressing this, Aristotle insists that we have societies and states for the explicit purpose to serve the citizens that have created them. He responds essentially to Plato that the individual exists for the state and not for the state for the individual. He stresses, if I may use a term from Castoriadis, the autopoetic character of societies, which are a self-instituting character of societies, which are not established by any divine legislation, but by two parameters, the physical need for survival and the, and the ethical imperative co for coexistence. The legislative process, according to him, to him, is based on our ability to rethink our societal structures vis-a-vis -vis our personal and collective circumstances. In a sense, Aristotle introduces together, at the same time, utilitarian and uh, deontological ethics, prescriptive ethics. You have to do something because it's necessary for the collective eudaimonia. You become good by doing the good, not by being good without doing the good. Goodness, as he says, is a habit. Goodness is an addiction, not the other way around. Very profound. Further, as he says, if I may read the next one, which is a bit long, but I won't read it all. The proof that the state is a creation of nature and prior to the individual is that the individual, when isolated, is not self-sufficient. And therefore, is like a part in relation to the whole. But he who is unable to live in a society or he who has no need because he is sufficient for himself, he has this famous statement, must be either a beast or a god. And he is no part of a state. So the person who is totally self-sufficient must be a beast or a god, and he is no part of the collective community, as you understand. Anyway, we'll see that. Aristotle poetics defined the way political societies reflect on themselves and reimagine themselves. Contemporary scholars strive to discuss various aspect, aspects of his political theory within the context of modern liberal democracies. Can the pursuit of virtue for its own sake can be the ultimate foundation of the function of a state? Can you ask Mr. Temple to think of your goodness and your good, uh, uh, the pursuit of your happiness? What about shorten? Uh, sorry. And our modern societies, pro are our modern societies prone to instrumentalizing human life? 
Is there in place still for the enjoyment of pure knowledge instead of acquiring knowledge which is only useful but not necessarily pleasant, according to Aristotle? Aristotle ethics teaches how we must learn as much as we can and use whatever is relevant to improve our condition. Practice and theory involve a constant process of choosing and reevaluating, as he said. In a sense, Aristotle is not only the father of modern scientific th thinking, but the father of moral reconsiderations. To know when to choose your ideas and practices when circumstances also change. The Jesuits were called that casuism, but that's another story. Or situation ethics, situational ethics. This makes him the first anti-dogmatic philosopher in the history of the Western world. And by studying the history of philosophy, I believe, that's for the students who are amongst, here, amongst us today, by studying the history of philosophy, you study philosophy. If you don't know the history, you think like the postmodernists that philosophy began the day they read the first book. The history of Western, and I'll finish with this, 2,400 years later, we're under the spell of a philosopher whose work is still debated and discussed. Critical thinking is the basis of all cultural history of the West. The philosopher who universalized the European experience was still and remains Aristotle, followed closely by Karl Marx. For 600 years, most thinkers in Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, Judaism called him the philosopher, as you, as you saw here. I didn't show you this here, you know, just the philosopher. And I love this cartoon as an identity principle. Aristotle's bar or grill, but not both. You either have a bar or a grill at the end of time, all right? You know, they're very interesting in this case. And I see that Aristotle is thinking about a logical syllogism. I'll bet he's rather working on his philosophical system. I've paid all the bills last Saturday, and you know, just this happened. And Aristotle with the bust of Homer. And of course, this is, I don't have the time to discuss it, but it's one of the most cryptic and enigmatic paintings of the Western world, as you remember. But what Maimonides, for example, and especially, where is up? Aristotle is the measure and model offered by nature to show the ultimate perfection of man. This is ideas by Abn Rashid Averroes, as we call him in the West. Certainly, there are many Aristotles, as there are schools of interpretation. Some reject his metaphysics, his ethics, and uh, his political theories. They all know, however, that they use the language he invented to talk about the symbolic function of the mind, the activity of the mind. This is probably one of the best statements you read by a philosopher, and that's my last point here. All right, this one is funny as well. Occasionally, Plato and Aristotle trying to solve the differences like this. And I love that one. The activity of the mind is life. Nos energia zoe, he said in one of the most striking sentences of his metaphysics. Aristotle's vision transcends the culture that made it possible, even the events that made it real, and has a continuing significance for all of us so many centuries later. He was one of the few thinkers we could see who could see unity in diversity and therefore constructed a democratic vision of life which is still with us today as a project and a challenge 2,400 years 
after his birth. Thank you so much, and I apologize for the delay. Any questions? <laughs> and I, I will reply with monosyllabics. <laughs> Thank you for this wonderful lecture. Um, I was intrigued that uh, you said that as interest in Aristotle rises, an interest in his actual life has perhaps declined. And you clearly thought it important enough to give us this sketch of his very interesting life. Now, with, without wanting to be too reductionist about it, I wondered if you wanted to would want to connect for us any further his ideas with this interesting life, working for these different courts, having this uh, Alexandrian cloud cast over his position in Athenian society, especially given that now, after this lecture, we're all very good Aristotelians with our emphasis on the basis of knowledge and embodied experience. <laughs> so I just wondered, especially given new work in uh, the early modern period on the connection of courts as sites of production of knowledge, whether you would want to cast that gaze back uh, also to the ancient Greek period. Every, every linguistic enterprise is political. Uh, we, we cannot take out political. I mean, the idea that pol uh, philosophers or thinkers or us as university lecturers are isolated from the political realities of our society, um, it's, uh, it's an illusion, delusion, or sometimes a, an overt lie, as you know, right? You know, we try to cover our sort of a kind of, um, it's our pretense to cover our sort of a political opinions as well. Uh, I think that I'm not a reductionist and I'm not a biographist. You know, I just love biographies, but not, I'm not doing biographism. Not everything is reduced to the biographical particulars of, of his life. But there are two events, I believe, the presence of Plato, and then the idea, which we have to see that today, for example, it, happens with the, it happened in the 20s with the intellectuals who were with the Weimar Republic and then they became Nazis. It's the idea that you have Democrats being transformed essentially into imperialists in that period. How democracies declined and how essentially, as you see, the empire, the empire and uh, the idea, as you notice, you know, just uh, the ideas of uh, Aristotle. And it's very interesting if I may go back to this one, which I wanted to have the opportunity to read with you. The, in this essentially fictitious letters, which exist only in, in, in Arabic, in an Arabic text about Aristotle, there is a famous um, a sort of kind of correspondence between Aristotle and uh, Alexander. And Aristotle and says, Alexander, oh, my excellent preceptor and just minister, I inform you that I have found in the land of Persia men possessing sound judgment and powerful understanding who are ambitious of bearing rule. Hence, I have decided to put them all to death. What is your opinion on this matter? And he responds, it's no use putting to death the men you have conquered. For they, they land, will, by the laws of nature, breed another generation which will be similar. The character of these men is determined by the nature of the air of the country and the waters they habitually drink. But pay attention. The best course for you is to accept them as they are and to seek to accommodate them to your concepts by winning them over through kindness. Now, this is, I think these even in a legendary way, it indicates as the political dilemmas that we see in the work of Aristotle. His politics, for example, 
try to show an objective impartiality towards the political systems that are around him. How can he say to Alexander that he's a Democrat? Or could he admit to the Democrats of Athens that he's an oligarch? So he has this, you know, iffy description of this and that and that, and that's good and that's bad, and democracy goes, becomes democracy, and oligarchy becomes tyranny, so we must find the balance and these kind of things. And then he has this very funny paragraph in which he says, now, all right, so very, all very good, but democracy must be, probably is, the best political system in exactly the same that a banquet prepared by many people is more lavish than one prepared by few. Which is a very strange way, actually, to say that democracy is a better political system. So he's trying to find a very a metaphor, a very metaphoric way of escaping the dilemma. So I think we have to see these dilemmas of uh, the political thinker in the life of the individual. That's why the Greeks hated him afterwards. That's why they, they never actually, he, the f for the first 300 years, nobody spoke about Aristotle. Nobody ever paid attention to Aristotle at all. And what we have actually is a sort of a construction of his, the, the uh, faithfulness of his friends later on. But I believe that at the same time as we understand his ideas, because they are collective ideas, they're not personal ideas, had permeated in a sort of a kind of circulated around the milieu of the, of the time and the context of the period. So they essentially they were everywhere. The idea of logos, of the reason as permeating us and being in, in nature, not simply for, for Plato, logos comes from outside, from God, from the divine, from the, the, supreme, the supreme court. Uh, cause. For, for, for Aristotle, it's born out of your materiality. So you, you are a material, therefore you have a, a spirit, if I may say. There you have, therefore you have a, a soul. It's still early, but this is a very, very, in, a, a, I would say, serious intellectual achievement because it creates the basis for psychology and the connection of the body, the, the function of the body as a if I may use the term, psychosomatic unity. You don't partialize it. You don't cut it into pieces and say, this is your, uh, remember the tripartite def definition of the soul by Plato. This, this, and this. For him, they are all fused. Now, I'm not amongst philologists <laughs> to raise matters of how these texts were, you know, are they the texts or have somebody cut and paste all of them together? Another story. Big story, long story. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. You've talked a lot about Aristotle's relationship and response to Plato. Did Aristotle have particular views on the pre-Socratics, such as Heraclitus? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, the first pro the boss, as you remember, the first book of metaphysics and part of the second as well, and a systematic critique of the pre-Socratics as well. Actually, for the pre-Socratics, he was the first one who called them materialists and at the same time theologians as well. He thought of them, actually, the idea that we go, goes back to some pre-Socratics that uh, everything is full of gods, the whole universe is replete with, of God, with gods, is the idea that uh, we have a theology there in uh, the early pre-Socratic philosophy. For uh, Paul, uh, you know, for um, uh, Heraclitus, Heraclitus, you can say, was the nihilist 
of the, of the early uh, 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 ancient Greek philosophy. He believed that in the end, nothing matters because change is so radical and so, if I may say, essential that we can't talk about ourselves as uh, being specific, as being concrete, as, as having a self. And that's the, the great, as you remember, provocation by Heraclitus. How do we deal with the problem of change? In a strange way, which is a metaphysical question, Aristotle addresses this issue in his famous second book of his physics, where he says, you move an object from here to there. What is happening with this relocation? Do we talk about change of things? And, and he has a very interesting metaphysical discussion in the physics about these things. So I think that he was very, he tried to get as much as he could out of them, the idea that we have to find some, if I may say, principles to link all this expanding world. Don't forget that Alexander, as we see in this correspondence, fictitious correspondence as it is, sent him back all the data from his the data, from his uh, uh, exploration. Don't forget that he, uh, he, he took a whole, sort of, if I may say, uh, group of scientists with him. So suddenly the world of Aristotle started expanding and he tried to find a way of putting them all together. So I believe that for him, the pre-Socratics gave him an idea that despite the diversity, the world could be unified and not be multiplied like Plato wanted. For Plato, the answer to this question is that there's another world which is better than this and incorruptible. It's not going to be, it's not corrupted by change. For Aristotle, this is in here, which is, I believe, the first form, if I may say, of environmentalism. Which I believe that he's very, the idea that we are part of the environment and of the natural realities is probably one of the best things that you can take from Aristotle and you can conceptualize them philosophically and metaphysically. Now, I think we're getting too late. You've given us a wonderful outline of uh, Aristotle's logicus. And uh, it's interesting that after having been subsumed for 400 years, he re is reincarnated in the world of Cicero, yeah. um, who's also linked to his logicus through oration and uh, Aristotle's rhetoric. Do you think there's a linkage there? Is there, is there a trigger that caused that reincarnation? And it's also interesting that Cicero may have stood on the shoulders of Aristotle, as Dante said, and I think you referred to Dante, who said that we cannot have progress until we understand what is already known. Perhaps you can link those three elements. Yes and no, right? You know, don't forget that as uh, scholars at Sydney University, we will never give you a, a, a definite answer. You know, yes and no. We are the, the kingdom of ambivalence and ambiguity here. So essentially, what we have to remember is that yes, he understood the intellectual validity and value of what Aristotle was claiming, but at the same time, he wanted to establish a theory for the empire and for the dying democracy. He found himself in the same political conditions of democracy being phased out in Rome in that period, so he essentially faced the same political dilemmas as Aristotle. Now, something which is, would have been another lecture is if Aristotle 
the Aristotle they read is the Aristotle that we are reading today. Long story. Now, the <laughs> which is no, actually, because essentially they read Aristotle through some manuals that his enemies, the Platonists, had put together. So for a whole thousand of years, the Aristotle was read through manuals put together by his enemies, his opponents, philosophical rivals. So, I think it's better to leave that indeterminate and the vagueness of history and the intellectual history. Very important. No, but I think that there are political reasons behind uh, the adoption of Aristotle by the, uh, by the Roman, Roman thinkers of that period. It was the end of, the, of Platonism. Platonism, as you understand, it was a, in a very strange way, always became a rebellious philosophical movement, although it's the most conformist, especially the last period of the laws by Plato. And finally, as you see, it was a period, I think, that um, the, the, transform, the, the, the collapse of the, imp, of, the, of, the, of the republic was becoming obvious. It was an institutional erosion of democratic freedoms, and he understood that. And Aristotle gave him the op opportuni opportunity to essentially delineate that. That's why, um, essentially, Cicero is a platonizing Aristotelian, or, in reality, an Aristotelianizing Platonist. So, it's happened. You know, you, you know it's, just, it's like being a Heideggerian Marxist. You know, just, you know, just, you know, as we had. Yeah, last question, because we, we I mean, we'll, uh, yes? So would you say that social media started with Aristotle and his students? Uh, because they're discussing uh, in a free way an idea uh, without being uh, held back. <laughs> and the interesting thing that came on the uh, BBC, oh, ABC News this morning uh, was that um, Baird has a social media advisor to travel with him. Unfortunately, he... Uh, <laughs> well, the question is... Make the question, yeah. The That's question a statement. is, do you uh, feel that Aristotle was the beginning of social media? I mean, you know... Not really, not really, no, no. <laughs> he, he was not very sort of into promoting himself. And the idea, you, we have to understand now, right? The, the, it was a democracy back then, but it was not so easy to propagate such ideas. Today, it's very interesting for me to destroy myself, but it was not possible back then, as you understand. It's a very, it was a very strange period. Don't forget that most philosophers were persecuted even in Athens. Socrates was killed. I have a very quick question. Um, I'm going to vote in a couple of months, as are most of us in this room. What would Aristotle advise us to consider important at the next elections? <laughs> the, the politician that, that actually safeguards your equality with other people, once we're trying to find, find, introduce justice to the society, and then finally, people who try to avoid, don't, not to vote for people who try to, to deceive you. So equality, justice, which for him are the two principles of a functioning political system, equality and justice. Now, of course, we can discuss who is 
equal to whom? Because uh, we cannot be equal to Malcolm Temple because he's wealthy, as you understand. You know, and as poor people and the paid academics are the same level and equally as uh, uh, Malcolm Temple? No. So that's another discussion there, equality, justice, and finally, the avoid, as he said, the avoidan avoidance of demagogues. It's a word that essentially, he says, you can find it in his, uh, in his politics, that the, the, because the Athenian democracy was destroyed by demagogues. And thank you so much. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I'll just do a quick thank you, Ras, on behalf of Sydney Ideas and the Greek Festival of Sydney. And I want to thank the Greek Festival of Sydney for the wonderful partnership and bring new audiences to the university. And I hope we get to work with you again. Thanks. Done.